That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. You know, Ray, every once in a while, an email pops across our computer. And a few weeks ago, I received an email from Jesse Gaddis, and he happens to do PR for a drummer influenced by so many of the root rock and rollers and a true rockabilly guy. And he and his band were a big part of my youth. So to be able to talk to him about his influence Influences the roots of rock and roll, his music, and what he's been doing since is a thrill. And I'm talking about Slim Jim Phantom of the Stray Cats. It is the imbalanced history of rock and roll, because once again, we failed to mention that out of the gate. But uh, <laughs> thanks for joining us for another episode. It's going to be a lot of fun, because the chat with Slim Jim was one of those things where we just kind of started talking and forgot that we were recording. At one point, I kind of looked at you like, are we recording? And sure enough, we were. And it captured a really great conversation. So we've got that. But first, we got to thank our sponsors, the folks at Boldfoot Socks. Check them out at boldfoot.com and save 15% by entering our code HISTORY15. And thanks to Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapera, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. And joining us on the imbalanced history of rock and roll is Slim Jim Phantom. Hey, you doing, man? I'm doing great. How you guys doing? Feeling groovy. It's a well, beautiful day. I'm just glad to meet you and glad that you and Marcus hooked this up for you to come and be on the podcast, man. I'm in all the way, man. Sounds cool. But you've got your own podcast, Marcus was telling me. Uh, yes, I've been doing one podcast for a fantastic platform called Snippet.fm. It's one good adventure tales woven around three songs and the whole thing's done 20 minutes. You can go wait at a few traffic lights and listen to the show. <laughs> Right, that's faster than one of those Bowie Peloton workouts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Well, it's like five years now. Uh, a show type show for Underground Garage. That's on Sirius. That's not really podcasty. The one we do for Snippet is a, I guess, podcast world. What goes into putting together the show you do for Satellite? Because that's got to be a lot of fun. You don't have a lot of the traditional commercial radio boundaries to deal with. Yeah, the one I do for Stevie for Little Stevens Underground Garage, Sirius XM Channel 21 with me, your rockabilly buddy, your honest mechanic Slim Jim Phantom, right here, Little Stevens Underground Garage. For that, it's like spun around rockabilly music and all the threads and my kind of belief that all roads lead back to Eddie Cochran on some level. And so we do that. That's about five years now. And the one with Snippet, which is Podcast World, we've been doing the second season now. And it's really cool because that is kind of motivated by some adventure tale in my life. It makes me remember, go through photos or stories and remember things and weave that around three songs. Slim Jim, you mentioned a name that we've been wanting to talk about for quite a while. Eddie Cochran. Why does the road begin with Eddie Cochran? Well, for me, rockabilly music 
been doing it, well, 41 years now. Eddie Cochran was one of those ones that, in the early days of finding out about Rockabilly. When I saw Eddie Cochran, it was mind-blowing. I compared to like the original Elvis Presley experience I had, who you knew about Elvis Presley, but you didn't quite know about him from the 50s. I didn't. This would have been 1978, 79. I was unaware of a lot of these artists and finding them through some classic artists find out who you like if you like the rolling stones you look up uh bo diddley chuck berry if you liked led zeppelin you would look up helen there was uh, like a process to it when i discovered eddie cochran i couldn't even believe that someone sang that great played that great looked that great wrote the songs that great frozen in time image and music well, I'm a Son, you gotta work late. Sometimes I wonder what I'm gonna do, but there ain't no cure for the summertime blues. And because he died so young, you know, it's one of those things that he's that age forever, you know, like James Dean kind of. Those are in time. Sorry, anyone that you speak to, Eddie Cochran, I think all roads lead back to that as being original, like, rock star. We're fascinated with what we call the Ravers, and you are connected to one of them who's still with us, the great Dwayne Eddie, right? Oh, yeah, Dwayne's my pal. Man. How did you meet Dwayne Eddie? I met Dwayne Eddie for the first time. This would have been in the mid-early part of the mid-80s. I mean, we really get rock star here, name droppy. I went to a gig that was being done by Dave Edmonds, who had produced the Stray Cats. He was our friend. Brian and I went there, and in the attendance was George Harrison, Jeff Lynn, Bob Dylan, all people that I had met a little bit before, Georgie especially, we were friendly with, and Dwayne, who was the closest to what we kind of do. It was funny, I didn't know Dwayne, and since then, we've been very, very close. I, I speak to Dwayne, his wife, Dee, we speak on the phone, we go to visit with them in Nashville, and they're just beautiful people, at the end of the day. Well, you flashed past George Harrison pretty quickly, but it was through Dwayne and George that you met Dylan, who I understand gave you some of the best advice you've gotten in your career. Yeah, well, I think I had met Georgie first, and Bob, apparently, I met him a couple times when we were, like, she had a dressing room on, like, a festivaly kind of a thing, and we were thrown together one time. And it, I think it just happened to be me. And we heard later on, this is relatively currently, I heard from Jacob Dillon, who's our friend, that Bob came to see the Stray Cats quite a bit. And he loved it. And he told Jacob that this is the correct thing to listen to, like do your homework kind of thing, like our manifesto, is Bob was telling his own son, this is how you, you know, find out about stuff. You go through that. But we, the Stray Cats, were doing a tribute show for Roy Orbison. So this would have been late 90s. And I had met George through Carl Perkins about four or five years before that just become friendly stayed in touch and i i love the guy dylan we were put into a dressing room a little bit there was a lot of people on it that day and he arrived and i just kind of got swept like when kramer wins the um the uh uh tony award (laughs) i was kind of swept in with with bob and found ourselves wow it's just he and me in a room and 
and I think I was very young still and I was complaining about something, <laughs> you know, people bugging me or whisking us around. And he just said, kid, don't take anything in rock and roll personally. And wow. ever since then, I've pretty much tried to do that. It's so wow. correct and so wise and so true. Don't take any of it personally. And I think you can apply the rock and roll. You could apply that to fill in the blank about anything like we all do, like you guys, like I do. It's all, can't take it personally. True. In reading up, I found out not only how much you're into jazz drummers, but that we share one of our favorites in common, the one and only Philly Joe Jones. Philly Joe is one of the greatest. All of those guys, Philly Joe, Max Roach, Art Blakey, those classic bop guys. I think when I was starting to learn how to play and taking lessons from the local music store guy who was very inspirational on me, and then with Mousy Alexander, another classic kind of drummer. But those bebop guys, like you said... Lee Joe, Max, and um, Art Blakey. To me, it was almost a beyond thing that I could comprehend still. And that's why when I found rockabilly music that had a swing to it, it wasn't exactly blues, which we loved. It could do that. It could do shuffle, do that. And from taking lessons and just understanding the swing a little bit, but those jazz cats were so beyond my comprehension, I knew I could never play like that. So that's why another big reason I thank rockabilly music for existing. <laughs> me, me kind of finding it when I did, because you could apply swing to it, like a little bit of that jazz stuff, but not have to have such incredible bebop chops that you're going to do the same thing, but differently. Well, I know there was music in the house and in the family, but how does a kid from Brooklyn end up being in the middle of this whole craze of rockabilly, which you guys kind of set on fire when you guys came out with Straight Yes. Born in Brooklyn, spent a lot of time with my mother's people, still a lot out there in Bay Ridge, and my father's people were Flatbush, but we moved when I was quite young, grade school, to Massapequa. And uh, there was music in the house because my father liked record. There were no other musicians. My brother played piano, and he still does, and he took lessons. And we played in the school band, played French horn kind of thing, but I always wanted to play the drums wanted to do it on some level. I didn't know what it was, but rock drums and Midnight Special and you know, a lot of those TV shows looked very appealing. Somehow to do that for your job, not really knowing what it was. So I had planned on you know, taking it to school and however life led us. But we would borrow classic rock records from I had a few cousins who were older than me and they had the usual stuff that would have been in the 70s. They had the Stones. I think there's a Beatles record lying around in my house that my mother had got as a gag gift from one of her friends and I had a cousin who had the Stones, who had Blind Faith, who had The Who, who had Aerosmith, those types of things. Classic rock that I love, but I'm a little bit album sleeve type, which I'm sure you guys and your listeners are, where we geek out for it. Oh, yeah. yeah. All the credits, all the lyrics, anything we can glean. Exactly. And the last thing, maybe a lot of times you go to the on the uh, the record label where it says the songwriter in the parentheses, you see Rolling Stones record and you see a C. Berry and you see The Who and there's an E. Cochran mm-hmm. and you see The Beatles and there's a C. Perkins and you see Aerosmith, there's a J. Burnett kind of thing. Blind Faith, B. Holly. And I just, my whole life really and my whole advice to anyone is find out if you like something find out who they like artistically and maybe you'll become a fan maybe you'll just have a little bit more knowledge maybe you'll just have a couple more cool things that you know but that's what happened to me and the uh, guys from the straight cats i think at the same time we started looking at who we like who do they like and you inevitably arrive at these classic first wave american rock and rollers 
for me, it was just game over. When I saw what Elvis Presley looked like in the 50s and Gene Vincent and Eddie Cochran and Jerry Lee and Carl and these original American rock and rollers, that's what I wanted to do. Game over. Yeah. Beginning at the same time. One of the things I remember, because I was 18 at that time, is that we found you on alternative radio more than on rock radio. As a rock and roll band, was that frustrating for you that you might have been categorized a little incorrectly? And nothing against alternative, because I listen to a lot of alternative music. But Before you answer, Jim, I just want to say that here in Philadelphia, where we're based now, Marcus, everybody... Everybody played it, all the rock stations, and not alternative so much because we didn't have an alternative station, but all the rock stations that were around then played it. Well, I think a lot of it had to do with exactly what years we're talking about. What happened is we signed our first record contract in England. And old record contracts, probably there, would be for here, for here, would be there. It was excluding certain territories because a lot of groups would just sign and they would work it in Europe kind of thing. And a record label didn't want the burden of trying to break an act in the States unless they wanted to. So we had gone to England because we got the Melody Maker a year late, eight months late, whatever kind of thing. And we thought it was cool and we liked the idea of punk rock and we Teddy Boys and we heard that they know more about it there. Because we've been playing around in New York for about a year before anyone heard of us. We were playing, you know, bars, four sets a night, five nights a week, learning all this stuff and loving it. One rockabilly bar band kind of thing. But we were dressed to the nines, tooled up all the time. Local eccentrics. It's 1979 in Massapequa. Pretty wacky thought. The three of We were trying to find the fourth person kind of thing. And so we went to England to try to find some type of scene. If anyone else has heard of this stuff, we arrived in England. We were homeless, knocked on doors kicked around and got a few gigs after about three, four, five months and played some shows. There was a very big buzz there. These you know, wacky guys and they can play. Holy mackerel. And we had Rockers Town. We had Straight Cat Strut. We just recently had written Runaway Boys because we were there. We were probably homeless when we wrote the song. So we signed the first record contract. There was a big buzz about it in England. And we worked England, Europe, Australia, kind of the rest of the world. It wasn't released in the States. So I think some of the alternative import style shows in the States, this would have been 81 and 82. They would have been the ones that found it, you know, the import. And that's why you were hearing it on alternative radio, Marcus, because those guys shopped at all those stores, which were, man, weren't they fun stores to have in those days, guys? Yeah. Being able to walk in. I mean, I've got one near me called Siren in Doylestown. That's great. But you could just walk into a store, thumb through, and have a clerk who was always ready to order for you, stuff like that. But that makes a lot of sense. And I learned something about the record industry and how they did things on this side of the pond versus the other side of the pond. So that's pretty fascinating, Jim. And when you were playing it four nights a week, four sets a night, what was the biggest challenge as a band coming together during that time? In the time before we went to England? Yeah, or the- as you were growing as a band. Well, at that exact time, I got to say there was nothing hard about it because we had discovered this music and we just loved it. And every day 
There was a few scattered stores like you're talking about, maybe one in, in the city, which we were about 40 minutes straight shot to Penn Station. So you'd get out, you wander around. There was a few record stores. You couldn't get it at Sam Goody kind of thing. Um, and there was one that was on Long Island, kind of in the middle, not too far from where we lived, that they had one little section that would have oldies kind of thing. And that wouldn't be the obvious ones. In the regular record stores, I don't think you could find Gene Vincent, Eddie Cochran. You could find, say, Chuck Berry's Greatest Hits, maybe, which was awesome. That's Domino. There was a few, like, ones that would have fallen in more to the oldies. I think that's where I found my uh, best of Eddie Cochran. It was like on United Artists, one of those uh, greatest hits covers, and it was like special bin you know just it was i guess you could say the cutout bin because they were just selling them for less than the 499 we were paying for records at that time you know and i just said wow all of his hits are in one place so i took that home and uh we've been listening to a lot of the music we're talking about here because of this episode we're working on so it's great to have you here if we seem a little geeked up about it right marcus we oh, are totally we're totally geeked up about it it's fascinating to learn about the older rockabilly and some of the uh, quote-unquote underground or rebel music is that it's been so-called over the decades because some of that music is just mind-blowingly incredible and I can't believe that it didn't find much more success at that time than it did because I know how it makes me feel decades later and this stuff changed the world in so many ways. So when we were finding it, it was not in a regular record store and not even in the small mom and pop rock stores. It was just a couple of real independent. And the I think there's one or two that I remember that the owners of the shop, they didn't even really know. They didn't care. It was their business kind of thing. You know, I'll look over there kind of thing. And we were able to find a few. And I talk about this a lot on my show. It was just kind of luck of the draw that we found. They had Janice Martin, who we loved, who became our friend in life. And and they had like one of the compilations from MGM or Imperial, but not this one. They had one Eddie Cochran, but not all the songs. It it was just rando luck of the draw. And that was record by a man. It was fun. And it was always an adventure, right? Yeah. And then any record that we happened to find, we would come back with, we shared a little flat, you know, in Massapequa, like someone's, you know, basement kind of thing that we, Brian had. And then I, I kind of out of my parents' house half and half, because at all of this time, we were doing gigs at night, coming back very late. So I, you know, wake up my household. I stay with Brian. Eventually, we kind of did it like that. We'd all go in one car and we'd find these records in the daytime. We were living how we thought or wanted to think that Elvis Presley lived in his early days in Memphis. Woke up a little bit late, went to the diner and got breakfast at two in the afternoon, made it over to a thrift store trying to find some cool threads, make a trek over to the record store. And when we got a record that we didn't know, we took it home and learned it and did a couple of the songs that night because we had to do multiple sets every night and just whichever records they happen to have. I remember one that was very influential on us was a Ricky Nelson one. That was a double album that had all the stuff. It had like that, almost like an Andy Warhol looking drawing on the cover of it. If you know that one, like we happened Mm. to find that record. That's the one that they had. So any records that we found, we kind of put them to immediate use really. And it was luck of the draw. And then we would play them that night. And certain ones we did a lot. There was no rhyme or reason like, I'm going to go out and find the third Gene Vincent because we just didn't know how to get them. Whatever they stumble across, that's what you would base your life on. Is this the album cover you were talking about? Yeah, that's it. 
Yeah, I'm trying to get it there on there screen. It there it is. Yeah, yeah. With, the, uh, with the Warhol look to it. Yeah, Total right. Warhol look. That's kind of how playing that record. And like, I don't even know if it's got a name, but we had that one. It's called Legendary Masters, just in case you were wondering. It might not say that on the cover. All right, because you never know. A different issue or a different label could have called it something else. But what a cool <laughs> picture. That's one that we had. That's so, it's, you know, like, it's just funny. You guys had such massive success. You go from, you know, starting out doing that four sets a night, and all of a sudden you find yourself at the Us Festival with how many people in 83? What was that like as far as transition or for contrast? Well, the Us Festival was a special one because it was lined up that just cosmically you couldn't do it on purpose. We had been playing at that point a few years. We had had a couple of hits in England, and then we came back here to the States and worked it all over again, started from square one again, where we could have, say, in England, Europe at that point played 1,000 seaters, 2,000 seaters. We came back here to the States and did every, every rock club that there is in 82 into 83. And it grew. And Us Festival, exactly when Rockabilly, the last time, I think it was the first time in a long time, and I don't know since, was exactly en vogue, like was the current trend that people who maybe not lived Rockabilly, because the ones now, if you choose that, it's kind of a lifestyle, what I've noticed. Look like that, it's like a lifestyle. You always look like that. Yeah. Leopard skin couch, you have an old car. Young people and old people have kept it that way. But 83, in that exact moment, I give a lot of credit to MTV for all of this because even when the record was starting to be successful, certain mainstream stations didn't play because not on purpose, I don't think. It just wasn't part of that their you know playlist world but mtv for a lot of people not just the stray cats i think made alternative into mainstream for a brief thing there and the us festival was a little bit of a celebration of that we were on with the clash that day missing persons men at work i think in excess a bunch of people that we we're all still you know we're always friends with i think that was the day a little bit for in the celebration maybe the import radio comes of age you know the clash being perfect mm-hmm. examples of it the stray cats where maybe the first album was on import and then it did well enough made enough noise that the parent company in the usa released it and it followed the map and the us festival for us within that it was just a perfect day where we happened to be exactly on the radio mtv was in the charts we had the right slot on the bill that day because we started it was kind of during our set it went dark and the lights came on it was just a perfect day, really. That was our day, I believe. Sounds like a great memory, man. Everything lined up that day. I don't know, as it was 100,000. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I know. It's we crazy. We had done that type of stuff before. And also, the good thing for that is we were on tour. I think we played the day before someplace. We played the day after someplace. So it was, we didn't have too much time to freak out. Between that time period... That was around Built for Speed when that was out, right? I think. And between the first album and that, you guys have come up in a uh, kind of a dig we're doing for another episode. We have been in the rabbit hole uh, about the documentary Under the Volcano. And when I was looking through, I saw that Gone a Ball by the Stray Cats was partly at least produced at Air Montserrat. Is that yeah. right? Yes. You got to tell us about that, man. We're we're doing a whole episode about that documentary, and they only talked to a few of the bands that were there. What was that like going into this beautiful paradise? The people apparently who lived and worked there were so, so welcoming and part of the experience. What was that whole thing like? And how do you feel about the album you got out of it? It was a great experience. I wonder why they didn't call more of the people. 
because I don't know how many people actually recorded there. It could have so many. I couldn't believe it, man. I'll just say that. And who did they talk? To? I heard about the documentary, and I I didn't know about it. I would have been happy to talk to them. Now I th- uh, they talked to uh, largely to Elton's band. They focused a bit on how Knopfler and Sting hooked up for Money for Nothing. Speaking of MTV, right, and a couple of the other things, uh, McCartney and Stevie Wonder working together and McCartney working with George Martin again for the first time since the Beatles, all those kind of things. It's a really cool movie if you haven't seen it. Fantastic. I'm trying to think. Montserrat, trying to think why we even went there. There was a lot of pressure, I think, right away to make another album. I think every band that you'll ever speak to for the rest of our lives, if the first record does well, the second one is usually hurried and you don't have the same amount of time because most people's first record, you've been playing it before you got a record contract, you know the songs. And the second albums are usually written as a result of them wanting a second album, then being the record company wanting a second album. And I believe that we went to Montserrat. It was, I can't say that we planned it. I think we were told to go kind of thing. Just, we're doing it here. We're doing it there. You just get taken places. Did you like being able to go jump in the pool between takes or being able to explore the island? Was that part of it? I think now I would like it more. (laughs) Then we were kind of black boots and, you know, (laughs) right. And a few shirts between the three of us. It turned out in a memorable way, but I think we were just told to go there. They took us there and, Edmonds wasn't available for some strange reason, and we went, and we were kind of by ourselves. So I don't know if that would even happen anymore, allow children to go to my <laughs> make their fo- follow-up album. It was a kind of a wacky thing to think that it even happened, but we did it, and you know now the record is uh, classic. It didn't sound the same as the first one. I think it sounded like us, but I don't think you can tell that it was done in the Caribbean. It sounds like a record. Edmonds didn't do it, but it became like a classic. I think we do it all over again. You might use Edmonds, you might have a producer, but it turned out we were were by ourselves. And now, thinking back, holy mackerel, how did we even get there? How did they let us do it? How did we get from A to B? I can't even remember any of it. (laughs) But I do know that we were there right after the police. Stuart Copeland is my true pal, drummer, guys together. That's where all those classic ones were shot. Every little thing and goes to the machine, him like jumping all over the mixing desk. And my joke to him is, dude, when I got there, I still saw your footprint on the mixing <laughs> In the documentary, he actually assaults Sting during an interview in the middle of things. You know, things got a little dicey on synchronicity there. But, you know, Sting liked it there a lot and stayed after, apparently, in the, the last session. And that's how he hooked up with Knopfler. Oh. Uh, Good times. I just wanted to make sure that was right because, you know, not all the information gets around to like Wikipedia and other sources. And I just think that's fascinating that you guys intersected with that amazing time there. I think at that point with the labels, maybe Montserrat had a thing and they were trying to get people there. Air Studios. I didn't meet George Martin. I wish with all my heart that I had now, but I don't think he was there. It was pretty much now I think of it. The three of us, we shared some little house and they had a little, you know, Jeep that you would drive over to the studio and we were just in there a lot we were a little nervous because we didn't have as many songs kind of thing and had to have something done by a certain day and it could have been anywhere 
but it was there and that makes it the the wacky story now because i think the place geologically isn't there anymore right well the volcano erupted after hugo took out the studio and then the volcano cut the island in half basically and is yeah it's not there it's still like isolated so i wish they'd spoke to me because i would have remembered a lot of stuff well man i gotta tell you i'm just having so much fun geeking out about our mutual love of rockabilly and the fact that you're mentioning all the guys that we've been studying you know and then some we've been looking into so many people like johnny burnett you guys did one of his songs just learning so much about rockabilly it's it's one of those things that i think is underexplored by people who do what we do with our podcast marcus i agree jim did you guys ever get to play with the cramps during your time in the 80s we did not play with the cramps i remember but i remember going to see them early on 79 80 and in New York City, they were pretty popular. They would do a club that would be pretty packed out. But on a tour, of course, you do Long Island, you do upstate, you do however it is. You do L.A., you, then you do San Diego, whoever the routing is. And on Long Island, we would go, and there was nobody there. There was maybe 10 people, free being us kind of thing, you know. And they still did the whole show just great. And then a few years after that, after we had a success, maybe it was even in L.A., I met them again, and we told them. And they were fantastic, Lux and Ivy. They were beautiful people. And later on, later on, on. This would have been in the 90s in L.A. There was a club called The Garage that was very short-lived. That The guy was cool, and he tried to bring all those American original rock and rollers there, whether it would be someone like Janice Martin or Ursula Hickey or Marvin Rainwater or go down the compilation list, all of them. Hayden Thompson, who's my friend. Again, not really well attended, but Lux and Ivy would be there. I would go because I would, of course, want to see these guys and also try to support that taking root again. Mm -hmm. And they were always there. They were very hip to it. They loved it. They, I think, walked the walk and they were into that music and they let Mm -hmm. it influence them and they influenced the ones that came after them. I think they're cool and important people in the story. Absolutely. And I figured with the sounds being a lot closer as far as rockabilly goes and your influence, while you both have that very huge rockabilly influence, your sounds were different, unique, and you bent the blues and you bent the rockabilly your own way to make your sound. You two being on tour together would be absolutely bonkers. I've seen both bands live. It would be bonkers. Yeah, we definitely went and saw them saw them play, and I assume they saw the Stray Cats. They were very, very nice. We were friendly with them, and you know, Lux is no longer around. And I, mm-hmm. and I haven't seen Ivy in a very long time, but I have very, very positive memories with them, and they really did love it and support it. We did an episode about them and their love affair and their love of the music back at Valentine's Day. Mm. Slim Jim Phantom is our guest here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. This is a great place to stop, grab a quick beer, change socks, because it is getting sweaty in here. (laughs) And now it's time to hear from our sponsors, Bold Foot Socks and Crooked Eye Brews. Hey, folks, if you haven't checked out Boldfoot Socks yet, go to their website and do it today, boldfoot.com. 
And if you like what you see and you want to place an order, you can save 15% on us by entering the code HISTORY15 in the discount box. Now, Marcus, you've had some great personal experience wearing your boldfoot socks. That is correct, Ray. I am an active cyclist. After hearing Josh tell us about his experience running a race in the desert in his bold foot socks. I had to give it a try on the bike, and they held really well. My feet didn't feel funky afterward, and after my spin class, my feet felt great. Not all wet and yucky. Wet and yucky, bad. Feeling (laughs) bold, good. (laughs) Go to boldfoot.com and check out all the styles, and they've got a wide variety of styles, no matter what your mood is about your socks and uh, colors, designs. It all fits into what you want out of a sock that holds up, and they definitely give you that support you need. I know from the times I've worn mine. Make sure you go to boldfoot.com and use the code HISTORY15 to get 15% off of your first order. Look. They're your feet. Be bold. Thirst. It's a need, Marcus. You need to satisfy a real thirst. And what a better way than with a nice, fresh craft beer at Crooked Eye in the heart of Hatboro. And you can also visit Jamie's House of Music in Delco to get that very fresh and tasty Crooked Eye beer. Their music schedule's picked up at Jamie's House of Music. I follow them on Facebook, so you see a lot more shows going on there. And anytime they're open for shows, you can get your Crooked Eye there, get a growler, and take some home. Or you can head to Hatboro, and their schedule's picked up a lot, too. And my vinyl night is moving to its permanent home the second Tuesday of the month. Come and see us. Bring your vinyl if you want. Or I'll bring mine. You can't forget that Friday nights from 4 to 11, there's live music over at Crooked Eye and open mic night the first, third, and fifth Mondays of the month. First, third, fifth. I can't do math when I'm drinking at Crooked Eye. Well, the brews are cold and they're always fresh, always the favorites and something new on the board there at the brewery location in Hapro. Serving the cure for what ails you since 2014. We thank them for their support of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll podcast. Back for more with Slim Jim Phantom on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Aside from learning a whole lot about you and your history... I'm really uh, digging getting into the rockabilly chatter, and maybe you'll come back when we do an episode all about rockabilly and be part of that with us. Because we concentrate on a show that we do called Rockabilly Confidential, and that's on Snippet.fm. That's our podcast world. We do a radio show for Stevie Van Zandt. I'm an honest mechanic in the underground garage. That's every Sunday. And Snippet, Rockabilly Confidential on snippet.fm that's on every wednesday and we delve into rockabilly and how it affected my life and how it's going to affect everyone's life in the future all the time because you're connected to rockabilly and i tell rockabilly confidential you're connected to it if you like the beatles you're like rockabilly if you like led zeppelin you like rockabilly if you like reverend horton heat you like rockabilly if you like the straight cats it's all connected Nothing comes from a vacuum. If you like Motorhead, Len loved Buddy Holly was his favorite, you know, mm-hmm. and Little Richard. So it's all connected mm-hmm. to the original American rock and rollers. I think everything, every pop culture thing 
stems from like a post-war thing. And maybe I think that it had something to do with a few key events happen. Elvis joining the army, Eddie Cochran, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, a few things happened in rapid succession. Johnny Burnett was steered into a more pop way, got to make a living, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gene Vincent was involved with Eddie, and then he kept doing it, but he had to do it on a level that, that was no longer mainstream. So the whole classic thing was not around that long. And luckily there's, you know, documentation. Now it seems easy to find it, right? Mm-hmm. When Stray Cat started doing some few records <laughs> and some blurry pictures on the back. Now it's a beautiful opportunity to get into Rockabilly and see two easy steps you can get from the White Stripes to Carl Perkins. It's yeah. it's it's not that it's, hard. it's easier than people fun. think, I think. You yeah. Know? You mentioned blurry photos and when I was looking into things and looking around, that's what I found was a blurry photo of Headcat on stage. You mentioned Lemmy, and I found that connection, and I just said, I got to ask him about that. How'd that come together, and what kind of stuff did you guys do as Headcat? Lemmy, I knew he was one of the original people that came to see the Stray Cats play. Maybe now about seven, ten you know, classic gigs that happened before the Stray Cats made our first album that happened really in and around London that were where the record companies, you know, heard about it and came. And a lot of them, there were 10 people at. But since we've been going around parties and hanging out and making ourselves known in a small scene in London, anytime you boil down a scene, there's going to be 20 people. And then, you know, the hardcore friends. And it was Lammy, Chrissy Hine, Strummer, Matlock, Cook, like those people, you know, Pete and Jimmy from the Pretenders, which I think who that original gang would be, those kind of seen people who were into it. And Lemmy, of course, was being being even then the elder statesman of it in a funny way, who went to the pub gigs in the late afternoon, early evening, and then went to the nightclubs like Lemmy and me. So after the straight cast, oh, one of my favorite guys to drink with, man. He's the greatest. And so we had a history early on of being friends and hanging out and him playing. He was more rocky than me. He was nerdy or he he said what do you mean you don't know this gene vincent song and that is how he would go through reel-to-reel tapes and cassette tapes and his crazy flat you know to find this one thing that he taped off the radio that i didn't know and that was our life this would have been 1980 i was friends with him every time we went to england he went to straight cats gig etc we would hang out and then in the early 90s, maybe, he moved to L.A. And again, small irony of life. He moved to the street that was right next to me. I would see him all the time. Wow. He would just hang out. When <laughs> That's when I met him, when he was the regular at oh, the Rainbow. Bad. He lived very near there, as did I. And one thing leads to another. We had been asked to do one track for a charity or a tribute record, which we did in you know, 10 minutes. And then we had the rest of the day. So he was already booked. He might as well. So we did another one. <laughs> One, another one, uh, and that became Headcat. Don't wait, don't hesitate, dance to the American 
we'll come back tomorrow at Studio Guy Free tomorrow. Yes, so we did it, and we did gigs through everyone's schedule. Motorhead was getting very busy then, and, and then Lem did his documentary, and our game team really started then, and then he got sick. We were with him to the very end. We sat with him at the end, and he was our pal. And the good thing is that the record that we made and a live record that we did in Berlin that had been recorded but incompleted is now been taken by BMG in a very nice way not taken you know a <laughs> deal, deal made with so the album that we made which was originally for Wendy Dio who was our friend on Niji Records BMG has acquired that and the live one in Berlin, and it's all going to be out in the late part of this year in a very nice way, nice packaging. Because it was just one of those things that it was myself and Danny and whoever was there telling stories about this wacky adventure. But my friendship with Lemmy went back to 1980, and it was a hardcore, beautiful friendship. The guys, he loved it. And there, he was pure. He was real. He, he was the one guy you could count on to be the truth. Yes. I think the attraction of someone like Lem, and there's also guys you hear about Jeff Beck making these kind of records, Jeff loves it, is that in their normal lives, they don't get a chance to maybe record Gene Vincent songs or Little Richard songs or Buddy Holly ballad. My, that was my regular life was playing rock. It's <laughs> like Lem, he got to do it, you know, and the fact that it was with me, who was his friend, who was also rockabilly guy naturally in my way, was even better. Thanks for sharing that that's all that's coming a, out with us here on the podcast. That's Jim. a mind-blowing so story. Wow. You mentioned those early days in London when there were like 10 people always showing up at your gigs like Chrissy Hine and Joe Strummer and Lemmy and James Honeyman, Scott, Jimmy. Did you ever just hang out and play with those guys? Did you guys all ever just hang out and jam together at any of those after bar hangouts or after show hangouts or night off hangouts when you guys were all at parties? That I don't think when those gang would come to the Straight Cats shows, which because it was before we were known, there would be like pub gigs going at five o'clock mm -hmm. in the afternoon and someone told somebody and that exact gang would be at them. And then not everyone to the clubs afterwards, Lemmy and I did. I'm sure he and I probably got up and you know, made a racket through something, but it was very much a separate thing back then. There was like the pub kind of circuit of early evening, late afternoon gigs and you know, the headliner would be done by 11 because it was pub pub hours and you would probably hang out at that and then afterwards go to nightclubs nightclubs where there wouldn't even be an opportunity to have equipment at that that i remember but there was a few after hours underground that there might have been an opportunity but never anything particularly organized like like a jam night i don't remember anything like that i think that the concept was a bit later i have one last question i know you've got to go on your way are there any bands you're listening to today that you really like that are carrying that rock and roll torch forward Yes, my pal Reverend Horton Heat is who I do a lot of stuff with him. He's totally cool. It's a I would like to say that you can find all these people if you listen to the shows. If you listen to Rockabilly Rave Up on Underground Garage Series XM Channel 21 with me, I play all, like every week there's new bands that I play. And on Rockabilly Confidential, we tell stories and we try to weave in a few new ones to that because that's the important thing to remember is that it's a new scene. It's like mm -hmm. happening in these young people in much the way that the Stray Cats, you couldn't have a dusty old record and get 
young kids into it. it. It has to be something that the kids can relate to the messenger, I think is a very important thing. And then and then you do your deep dive if you're interested. But there are the Reverend Horton Heat being one, Daryl Heim, England, Catman. I think Imelda May is a great one, is, who's a friend of ours. The Screaming Rebel Angels in New York. There's a really good one called the Spoonie Boys, who are French. If you archive my shows, listen to my shows, we, we really try to keep it current. You can find Jim's podcast at slimjimphantom.com slash podcast. You're on Patreon too, right? Yes. Yes. Patreon's a fun one because I save stuff for Patreon that like I just come across. I don't have to you know worry so much. You know, this, you know, the people are so nice. This gig I played a few of the Patreon people were in Florida. They came. Beautiful. And um, I like Patreon. I think it's a good way to stay close with everybody. He is Slim Jim Phantom, our guest here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Thanks for taking us to school, man. And I'm serious. We got to have you back, man. Back to talk more about rockabilly uh, when we get into the roots. Now we know each other. Stay in touch. We definitely will. Oh, man. What a great conversation with Slim Jim Phantom here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I hope he comes back soon. Maybe he'll bring some friends because anybody who loves rockabilly that much is always welcome here on the podcast, especially when he knows some of the guys. I really want to have him and whoever else we can get on that are friends of his to talk about rockabilly and rock and roll as well. And I do at some point want to do an episode on the Stray Cats because of what they brought to music in the 80s. And Slim Jim, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us. Running a bit long, so we'll just remind you, you can reach us at our website, imbalancedhistory.com, or by emailing us at imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. Distributed by the Pantheon Podcast Network, we are a production of Dark Doc Media. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this is the Imbalanced History of Rockabilly. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 